Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Jehocraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you on the Thursday evening, where we will continue our reflections into, well, maybe I should better say my responses to your questions, huh? <laughs> which of course are reflections into uh, what is on your heart. Today is a special topic Thursday, which is an evening tailored to your questions, an evening tailored to what you are thinking about, right? Uh, what has been passing through both mind and heart as uh, we talk about the many aspects of uh, our beautiful Christian and Catholic faith. This week we'll take up the question of private revelation and the great vision of Juan Diego in the apparition of Our Lady of Guadalupe. Certainly with the memorial of Our Lady of Guadalupe taking place just a couple of days ago, it is always uh, a good time to talk about those events and certainly as you have been asking me questions about them, this is what we are about. As it relates to the questions themselves as they were posed to me, Joe, what is the relationship between public revelation and private revelation? And what are the particulars to Our Lady of Guadalupe that I should be paying attention to? Okay, so again, this evening, as we explore some aspects to private revelation, we will also take stock in the story of Our Lady of Guadalupe and certainly some of those key details as they pertain to the tilma and responding to that question, you know, why should I be paying attention uh, to this particular revelation? All right, all that being said, as it relates to the question with public revelation and private revelation, I think we would be best served if we actually turn to the catechism uh, because I think they have a really nice summary response to that question. If you were to go to paragraph 67, uh, this is what you will find. Throughout the ages, there have been so-called private revelations, some of which have been recognized by the authority of the Church. They do not belong, however, to the deposit of faith. It is not their role to improve or complete Christ's definitive revelation but to help live more fully by it in a certain period of history. Guided by the magisterium, the collective sense of the faithful knows how to discern and welcome in these revelations whatever constitutes an authentic call of Christ or his saints to the church. Christian faith cannot accept revelations that claim to surpass or correct the revelation of which Christ is the fulfillment, as is the case in certain non-Christian religions, and also in certain recent sects which base themselves on such revelations. So what is the Catechism saying there? Well, simply, my friends, <laughs> public revelation is sacred scripture. And if a private revelation comes along, if someone claims to have had a vision that is not congruent with the gospel, you have a problem. Now, in reflecting on this, it should be said, as it has been observed by myself and I think many others, um, I think some people tend to go 
to one extreme or the other on private revelation. They either completely reject the concept or they consider private revelation their chief rule of faith. And this could be widely problematic because if all you're focused on is private revelation, then you're missing the boat. Certainly, private revelation, if it's authentic, should bring you back to the gospel. But if it's not bringing you back to the gospel, then you have a problem. On the flip side, to disregard private revelation altogether would in of itself be anti-biblical, right? What do we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21? Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Test everything and retain what is good. What is Paul speaking to there but the spiritual gifts which are given to us by the Holy Spirit, right? Does he not explore this even further in 1 Corinthians chapter 12? Flipping there now, we'll go ahead and read, oh, maybe verses 1 to 11. Listen to what Paul says here. I think this is very important as it relates to uh, private revelation and what the Holy Spirit desires. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are a varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, and to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So, <laughs> in reading St. Paul here, it should come to no surprise that we read of such prophetic visions in some of the more widely known figures in the early life of the church, and the role that really private revelation has had in the history of our faith. And here, I'm thinking of, uh, let's see here, there's so many we can draw from. I pulled up a few. How about the, the martyrdom of Polycarp? Listen to his vision and then how it played out at the end of his days. While he, Polycarp, was thus at his prayers, three days before his arrest, he had a vision in which he saw flames reducing his pillow to ashes, whereupon he turned to his companions and said, I must be going to be burnt alive. After his arrest, the crowd called loud demands for Philip to let loose a lion at Polycarp, However, he told them that the rules would not allow him to do so, 
since he had already declared the beast fighting closed, whereupon they decided to set up a unanimous outcry that he should have Polycarp burnt alive. And as that martyrdom has been recorded, my friends, it closes with these words, and I love this. Polycarp was bishop of the Catholic Church at Smyrna and a teacher in our own day who combined both apostle and prophet in his own person. For indeed, every word that ever fell from his lips either has had or will have its fulfillment. And of course, <laughs> what fulfillment are we talking about here? Well, that he had this prophetic vision that he would be burnt alive. How about uh, Constantine the Great? And I love this one. This is recorded in the very famous Eusebius uh, histories. And while he, the Emperor Constantine, was praying with fervent entreaty, a most marvelous sign appeared to him from heaven, the account of which it might have been hard to believe that it had been related by any other person. But since the victorious emperor himself long afterwards declared it to the writer of this history, Eusebius, when he was honored with his acquaintance and society and confirmed his statement by an oath, who could hesitate to accredit the relation, especially since the testimony of after time has established its truth? He said that about noon, when the day was already beginning to decline, he saw with his own eyes a trophy of a cross of light in the heavens above the sun and bearing the inscription, Conquer by this. At this sight, he was struck with amazement, and his whole army also, which followed him on this expedition and witnessed the miracle. He said to me, moreover, that he doubted within himself what the import of this apparition could be. And while he continued to ponder and reason on its meaning, night suddenly came on. Then in his sleep the Christ of God appeared to him with the same sign which he had seen in the heavens, and commanded him to make a likeness of that sign which he had seen in the heavens, and to use it as a safeguard in all engagements with his enemies. Being struck with amazement at the extraordinary vision, and resolving to worship no other god save him who had appeared to him, he sent for those who were acquainted with the mysteries of God's doctrines, and inquired who that God was and what was intended by the sign of the vision he had seen. That is in Eusebius, and that's actually recorded in the life of Constantine. And so, what was this sign, my friends? But the great sign of Cairo, right? The, the abbreviated name for Christ in the Greek. Constantine had this etched on the shields, and in one of the great battles in Roman history, in the Battle of uh, Milvian Bridge, Constantine defeated his opponent, and the victory would ultimately lead to the Edict of Milan that would, of course, lift the persecution of Christians in Rome. Certainly, Constantine uh, took heed to this great vision, and after the great victory, he accredited the one true God uh, for his victory. So, here you have another beautiful example of how private revelation impacts just not one person, but really culture as a whole. Now, <laughs> to get to the second part of your question, there was another private revelation, a private revelation that we could say definitely impacted a particular 
culture. And of course, here again, we are talking about the private revelation of Mary to Juan Diego. Throughout the centuries, um, Mary has been reportedly appearing to various people and in various places around the world. While some of these reports have been false and can be chalked up to one's overzealous behavior, others have been uh, approved by the church. And they have been approved by the church for their authentic fruit and message that is congruent with the gospel. And of course, among the many approved apparition sites, the one that stands by itself in history for the way in which it transformed a culture in the spirit of truth is that of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And so to get at answering your question about Our Lady of Guadalupe, let us get to the story itself. A story, my friends, that has us in Tenochtitlan, which, of course, is today uh, Mexico City. It was on December 9th, 1531, when Juan Diego was on his way to attend morning mass, uh, that he heard birds break open into song. And immediately, the, re- uh, the recent Christian convert, uh, Juan Diego, rushed to see where the noise was coming from. Upon arriving at the top of Tepeyac Hill, he beheld a woman who was clothed with the sun and adorned in a mantle of stars. The woman announced herself as Mother of the Most High. She requested to have the local bishop build a temple in her honor. The humble Juan Diego took the request to then Bishop Juan Zumarraga, and this bishop, after listening to Juan Diego's appeal on behalf of the Virgin, made a request of his own. He requested to have the heavenly woman perform a sign for confirmation. And so it was on December 12th, just three days later, that Juan Diego returned to Tepeyac Hill. And it was then that this virgin of light asked Juan Diego to take his tilma, gather up the roses that were in bloom, and take them to the bishop for the miracle of the roses in bloom in the dead of winter would be a sign of something extraordinary, right? This is at least what Juan Diego was thinking. And so as the story is told upon Juan Diego's return to the bishop, he opened up his poncho-like garment and the roses fell to the ground. But it was not the roses that grabbed the attention of Bishop Zumaraga and his associates. It was the tilma. The tilma itself. The bishop and his associates were brought to their knees with a picture that was embedded into the tilma. An image of a woman clothed in light. As the story goes, it was then that Bishop Zumaraga vowed to adhere to the request of the Virgin (laughs) to build a new temple in her honor. Now here, my friends, I would like to pause to reflect further into the significance of this image of the Virgin. Certainly the, the tilma, uh, this poncho-like garment, is like a canvas where we are made to read the richness behind Mary's grasp of evangelizing the culture of, again, then Tenatitlan, today Mexico City. Uh, consider the following. This is just the beginning of the richness of the tilma. The cincture around her waist was an Aztec sign of pregnancy. So you have the cincture around her waist on the tilma in this image. And of course, 
as this is an Aztec sign of pregnancy, Our Lady of Guadalupe is an image that communicates her motherhood as Mary in this image is with child, right? And as she is with child, she's bringing with her the birth of new life in her son. What else? The sun, moon, and stars that she is adorned with and crowned with were all deities of the ancient Aztecs. So Mary is announcing herself as the queen of the hosts of heaven and more powerful than any pagan deities. We, in many ways, are to see Our Lady of Guadalupe as the image that we see in Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 and following, that describes this woman who is clothed with the sun and, of course, has a crown of 12 stars. How about Tebayak Hill? Tebayak Hill was the location of the ancient feminine goddess. So here you have Mary arriving on that same hill as the revelation of true feminine genius, huh? Mary, my friends, is not a goddess. The Catholic Church doesn't treat her as a separate god. But as I've spoken to it in the past in great, great detail, she is one who mediates. I say to you and you say to me, can you pray for me? We say to Mary, can you pray for me? And while there's so much more to say on top of that, at its very foundation, that is what is going on here. What else? Well, Mary is crushing the serpent in the image. This is significant because the serpent was a prominent divinity for the Aztecs. So what you have in this image is a revelation of Mary as one who crushes the head of the serpent. Is this not what we read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15? Now, what's most fascinating, and some of you may want to do your homework on this, <laughs> but recent science has claimed that the stars of her mantle are of the constellation Virgo. What is most astonishing here is that they appeared positioned as the constellation would have appeared on the date of December 12th, 1531. Certainly, Mary appears as the true virgin of the stars. And maybe most importantly, it has been reported that within a time frame of 10 years, over 9 million Aztecs had converted to the new Christian faith. So Mary went into the heart of a culture with the purpose of bringing the Indian people to a deeper understanding of the divine by transforming their understanding of the divine. She took the images and signs that represented their worship and gave them a new worship, a worship that was proper to her son, right? Jesus Christ. Our Lady of Guadalupe made man new, and in turn, the culture of Mexico City was transformed in the new man. One of the more poignant truths regarding the story of Our Lady of Guadalupe is the fact that this is the only artwork, if you will, that literally comes from the finger of God. Certainly there have been many pieces inspired through the centuries, but nothing like this, literally from the creative genius of the mind and heart of God. Researchers tell us that the tilma was woven from cactus fiber. It is really fitting, I think, my friends, that God would pick something so simple as a tilma made from cactus fiber to reveal his own masterpiece, the Virgin of Guadalupe, the one who enculturated the gospel, 
the one who really teaches us how to evangelize uh, a collective people. And I just think this to be absolutely beautiful. I was reading up on Our Lady of Guadalupe, and it is always a fascinating subject for me because there's always something new in it for me. And I came across a piece that I wanted to read for you. I did not talk about the eyes of this image. And so, sparing you my paraphrase of this article, I thought I could just read it for you. And so this is an article that is titled, Science Sees What Mary Saw from Juan Diego's Tilma. The image, imprinted on the tilma of a 16th century peasant, led millions of indigenous Indians in Mexico to convert to the Catholic faith. Earlier this month in Rome, results of research into the famed image were discussed by engineer Jose Tonsman of the Mexico Center of Guadalupe Studies during a conference at a pontifical university in Rome. For over 20 years, this graduate in environmental systems engineering at Cornell University has studied the image of the Virgin left on the rough fiber fabric of Juan Diego's tilma. What intrigued Tonsman most were the eyes of the Virgin. Now listen to this, my friends. I just find this most fascinating. And remember, this is coming from a scientist, okay? A scientist. Though the dimensions are microscopic, the iris and the pupils of the image's eyes have imprinted on them a highly detailed picture of at least 13 people, Tonsman said. The same people are present in both the left and right eyes in different proportions, as would happen when human eyes reflect the objects before them. Tonsman said he believes the reflection transmitted by the eyes of the Virgin of Guadalupe is the scene on December 9th, 1531, during which Juan Diego showed his tilma with the image to Bishop Juan Zumraga and others present in the room. In his research, Tonsman used a digital process used by satellites and space probes in transmitting visual information. He insisted that the basic image has not been painted by human hand. As early as the 18th century, scientists showed that it was impossible, impossible to paint such an image in a fabric of that texture. The fibers used by the Indians, in fact, deteriorate after 20 years. Yet, the image and the fabric on which it is imprinted have lasted almost 470 years. Tonsman pointed out that Richard Kuhn, the 1938 Nobel Prize winner in chemistry, found that the image did not have natural animal or mineral colorings. Given that there were no synthetic colorings in 1531, the image is inexplicable. In 1979, Americans Philip Callahan and Jody Smith studied the image with infrared rays and discovered to their surprise that there was no trace of paint and that the fabric had not been treated with any kind of technique. So Tonsman asks, how is it possible that despite the fact there is no paint, the colors maintain their luminosity and brilliance. Tonsman, a Peruvian engineer, added that Callahan and Smith showed how the image changes in color slightly according to the angle of viewing, a phenomenon that is known by the word iridescence, a technique that cannot be reproduced with human hands. The scientist began his study in 1979 
he magnified the iris of the virgin eyes 2,500 times and through mathematical and optical procedures was able to identify all the people imprinted in the eyes. The eyes reflect the witnesses of the Guadalupe miracle. The moment Juan Diego unfurled his tilma before the bishop, according to Tonsman. In the eyes, Tonsman believes, it is possible to discern a seated Indian who is looking up to the heavens, the profile of a balding elderly man with a white beard, much like the portrait of Bishop Zumarraga painted by Miguel Cabrera to depict the miracle, and a younger man, in all probability, interpreter Juan Gonzalez. Also present is an Indian, likely Juan Diego, of striking features with a beard and a mustache, who unfolds his own tilma before the bishop. In summary, the virgin's eyes bear a kind of instant picture of what occurred at the moment the image was unveiled in front of the bishop, Tonsman says. Moreover, and I believe this to be most striking, my friends, in the center of the pupils, on a much more reduced scale, Another scene can be perceived, independent of the first, the scientist contends. It is that of an Indian family made up of a woman, a man, and several children. In the right eye, other people who are standing appear behind the woman. Tonsman ventured an explanation for the second image in the Virgin's eyes. He believes it is a message kept hidden until modern technology was able to discover it just when it is needed. This could be the case of the picture of the family in the center of the Virgin's eye, the scientist said, at a time when the family is under serious attack in our modern world. Wow. Brothers and sisters, I'm not making this up. Nine million Indians don't just convert on some crazy story. I think what you have in Our Lady of Guadalupe is one of those private revelations, congruent with the gospel, of course, that ultimately draws us deeper into the mystery of the gospel, one that is rooted in a conversion of heart and ultimately a conversion of heart that leads to the service of man. Just as Mexico City was transformed by just not the conversion of man, but ultimately the reformation of a culture, so are we. So are we too repent and convert and out from such repentance and conversion be at the service of man amen amen all right let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit amen all glory be to the father and to the son and to the holy spirit as it was in the beginning is now and ever shall be world without end amen and god bless you Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.